is the Ellis Martin Report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability, if not a certainty, that the Ellis Martin Report is compensated for that mention. We're telling you this so you can make your own independent evaluation of these opportunities. Also, as with most leading-edge opportunities, if you can't afford to potentially lose your investment, don't risk it. We make no personal recommendations about any sponsor on this program. We encourage you to do your own research. Yes, we do as much due diligence as possible, but nothing is completely predictable in this big world. Here's an idea. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit us at ellismartinreport.com. And now, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Jordan Trimble, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Sky Harbor Resources, trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and SYHBF on the OTCQB in the U.S. Sky Harbor Resources is a preeminent uranium and thorium exploration company with projects located in the prolific Athabasca Basin of Saskatchewan, Canada, which was ranked as the best mining jurisdiction to work in globally by the Fraser Institute in 2017. The company has been acquiring top-tier exploration projects at attractive valuations culminating in five uranium properties totaling approximately 200,000 hectares throughout the basin. In July 2016, Sky Harbor secured an option from Denison Mines to acquire a 100% interest in the Moore Uranium Project, now the flagship project, which hosts the high-grade Maverick Zone. The company is run by a strong management and geological team who are major shareholders with extensive capital markets experience as well as focused uranium exploration expertise in the basin. Jordan, welcome back to the program. Jordan, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about uranium, and it's an interesting sector all across the mining world. Are we seeing the love for uranium yet? Look, I mean, the last year has been an interesting year. There was a lot of headlines over the last year fixated on this Section 232 decision that came and went. The decision was not what investors had expected, and as a result of that, we've seen a lot of event-driven money and funds that came into the space that bid a lot of these companies up. On the back of a rising uranium price, I will note a year ago, those positions have had to unwind. So we have seen a pullback in the prices and the valuation. I really do think it's a short-term phenomenon. If you look at the outcome from 232, not forcing or imposing these quotas, domestic quotas for utilities in the U.S. to buy domestically from uranium producers, that's actually a positive for any non-U.S companies that there'll be a lot less uh, subsidized supply potentially coming online in the U.S. over the next five to six years. But as I said, there was event-driven money that came in that's left the space. So we've seen a reset here over the last several months. I think it's created an incredible buying opportunity. The value proposition, I truly believe, is is better than ever. And I've been buying in the market, as you'll see with my insider purchases. So I'm putting my money where my mouth is. And I think over the next six to 12 months, now that we have 232 out of the way, the working group is coming to a head here as well. That'll clear the air. That'll clear the air for utilities to come back, start buying again. It'll clear the air for the industry going forward. And talking about some of the upcoming catalysts, an important one, one of the big ones is Cameco. Cameco, as we know, shut down MacArthur River, the largest uranium mine in the world. They have to shore up that supply from somewhere to deliver into their 
long-term contract. So we know earlier this year they had to buy 12 million pounds to deliver into these contracts. More recently, we're hearing that they still have a lot of that to buy over 10 million pounds, possibly. And so that's a lot of material that they have to buy in a short period of time. And if they can't get that from a secondary supply or source, they'll have to step into the spot market. And to put some perspective on that, a year ago when we saw the uranium price increase from the low 20s to $29 a pound, and we saw a lot of the uranium companies as a result hitting 52-week highs, a big part of that move in the uranium price was Cameco buying about 8 million pounds in the spot market over a longer period of time. So here we have potential scenario playing out where more has to be purchased in a shorter period of time. So I think that could be a big near-term catalyst for the price in the next several months. We also are starting to see the intermediate products in the fuel cycle, the prices of these and the cost of enrichment and the cost of conversion increasing. And that can be a leading indicator for a price increase in the uranium price. We've seen in the past when these intermediate products, the price and the cost of making them increases, can see the fuel cycle tightening up. And that's usually a positive for the spot price and for the price of uranium, which is what we mine and what producers supply the market with. So that's an important point too. So bottom line is I think post-232 has created a pretty interesting entry level here for a lot of companies, uranium companies, yet we have over the next 6 to 12 months some notable catalysts with Cameco potentially in the spot market aggressively and also again contracting, right? We know that the, a lot of utility companies were forced to the sidelines during this 232 investigation, in particular in the U.S. And so a lot of utility buying was stifled over the last year. And you could see now utilities coming back to the market, both in the spot market and potentially new long-term contracts being signed. We know that a lot of these long-term contracts are rolling off. We've seen utilities shoring up supply from other sources, but there's only so much secondary supply out there and that market's tightening up as well. So I think over the next six to 12 months, we're going to see a price increase. I remember back in the 70s when I was in radio, there were a lot of protests with regard to nuclear energy, no nukes. And it was pretty significant in slowing down the progress of the nuclear industry here in the U.S. and probably Canada as well. Has that really changed? And where does this relate to global warming? Is now uranium being looked at as, as something friendly? Public opinion on nuclear seems to ebb and flow. You know, it goes through its highs and its lows. But the numbers don't lie. And the reality of the situation is that we need nuclear. It's here to stay. It is the only source of base load 24-7, clean, CO2 emissions-free electricity. It's low cost. It's reliable. It provides grid and price stability. And it anchors local community with jobs and attacks big industry globally and employs a lot of people. In light of the recent climate change protests we've seen, I think nuclear has to take a firmer stance on the benefits it provides being that low-cost source of emissions-free electricity. When we talk about renewables, I like to talk about them as being complementary to each other. I know there's a lot of people out there that are anti-nuclear and very pro-renewable, but the reality of it is, is you need nuclear. You need it as that baseload source of electricity. And, you know, there's a couple glaring facts that need to be highlighted. You know, one is energy density. When you look at nuclear and the electricity generation per square kilometer, it's unrivaled. When you look at wind or solar, you're talking orders of magnitude more land that's needed. In the case of solar, you need about 
75 to 80 times more land to generate the same amount of electricity. And for wind, you need over 300 times more land. So, you know, just the environmental impact of that, I think, is worth noting. And then you also have the fact that renewables are intermittent sources of electricity need grid storage and infrastructure, which is to implement that to current state is going to be very costly, very time consuming. And so nuclear can generate electricity at a capacity factor of over 90%, again, baseload power, whereas renewables can't. And then we can talk about some of the new nuclear technologies that are getting some attention in the media and have some notable investors like Bill Gates and Peter Thiel. One in particular are these SMRs, small modular reactors. So instead of building a big nuclear power plant, very expensive, they're looking at now rolling out these smaller reactors that generate 10 and 15 to 300 megawatts versus a gigawatt. Easier to permit, they're less costly, and that really could be the way of the future in the Western world. But bottom line is nuclear is here to stay. It's going to play an important role in climate change, fighting climate change going forward, continuing to improve air quality in parts of the world where it's a big issue like China, like India. That's where you see the most growth in nuclear power generation and therefore demand in uranium. And so I think in the context of the last month here with the protests, I think nuclear has to come to the forefront more. What's happening with the more uranium project in the Athabasca? So we just announced a planned 2,500 meter drill program, which will commence later this year, early next year, once we have freeze up at the project. This really is a pivotal drill program for us as the bulk of the drilling is going to be focused on basement hosted drill targets. And without getting into too much technical lingo, I know I've talked about this in the past, but what we're going after now at the Moore Lake project are the feeder zones for the high grade uranium mineralization that has been discovered at the project, which is hosted in the sandstone or at the unconformity. So the fluids, the uraniums come up from below in structures and it's pooled at the unconformity in the sandstone. But where the highest grade and the largest deposits are typically found in the Athabasca Basin are in the basement rocks. And what's intriguing right now is we've just carried out geophysical surveys using drone. This is a new technique we've effectively used to refine drill targets at depth in the basement rock. We really did not have the ability to accurately target these potential feeder zones or source rock and targets at the Maverick Corridor. That's the big, long four-kilometer corridor that's mineralized that we have high-grade uranium currently at, and we're looking to find additional zones of high-grade mineralization. With these new targets in the basement rock. We're going in there and we're carrying out a 2,500 meter drill program looking for the source of the known high grade mineralization, potentially much larger and higher grade deposits at depth. So that's quite exciting. And that's really been a paradigm shift in the Athabasca Basin over the last 10 to 15 years where companies have been looking in the underlying basement rocks and have been finding some of the best deposits, biggest and highest grade deposits as a result of that, you look at NextGen, you look at Fission, you look at the Griffin deposit that's at Denison's Wheeler Project. These are all basement-hosted deposits, and we've really only just scratched the surface in the basement rocks at the Moore Lake Project. So 2,500 meters, the bulk of which will be focused on drilling these basement targets 
We also have our partner companies, Arano, which is, again, France's largest uranium mining and nuclear company, carrying out upcoming exploration program at our Preston project. That's a part of an $8 million earn-in for up to 70% of the project. We're going to have details out on that program over the next several months. And then our other partner at our East Preston project, as in court, is planning a 2,500-meter drill program starting later this year, early next year at that project. Both of those programs are good complements to what we're going to be doing at our flagship Moore Lake project. As anyone knows, doesn't matter what you've got in the ground, management team is really, really super important. Yeah, so we've done a good job assembling, I think, one of the better exploration teams out there, focused expertise in the Athabasca Basin. My head geologist, Rick Kazmersky, as we like to refer to him as Radioactive Rick, has been looking for uranium in the Athabasca Basin for over 40 years. He was the exploration manager at Cameco for over a decade before starting his own company and ultimately selling that company to Denison. So he's found a lot of uranium in his day, Christine and Dave, who work with him. And then at the corporate level, myself, I run the company, my chairman, Jim Pettit, who I work with here in Vancouver. And then Dave Cates, who's the president and CEO of Denison Mines, is a director. Paul Matizic, a well-known company builder in the mining space, is a strategic advisor. So a very strong team running the company, both corporately and in the field. Again, focused expertise on finding high-grade uranium in the Africa basket basin. And this company is not really highly leveraged. You've got a very respectable share structure. Yeah, there's only 64 million shares issued and outstanding. It's a good structure. Management and insiders own a large position in the company. Denison Mines is their largest strategic shareholder. A couple of other notable shareholders and funds that have come in over the last several years taking a position in the company. So good share structure and good backers. So what does it look like for the next six months? So we have a lot coming up over the next six months. Specifically for the company, we have three programs slated to commence in the next several months. Our drill program at Moore Lake, as well as our partner companies, Arano and Azincourt, planning exploration and drill programs at the Preston and East Preston properties. And then you have that in the backdrop of what I really believe is going to be an improving uranium market, especially with the prospect of Cameco having to buy a lot of material in the spot market, utilities coming back to the market post-232 and the working group, and an improving sentiment in the nuclear and uranium market. Jordan, it's always great to speak with you. Thanks so much for updating our audience with regard to Sky Harbor Resources. Hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot. I've been speaking with Jordan Trimble, President and CEO of Sky Harbor Resources, trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and SYHBF on the OTCQB in the U.S. For the Ellis Martin Report and Sky Harbor Resources, I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. EllisMartinReport.com this segment of the Ellis Martin Report is sponsored by MX Exploration, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol AMX and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as AMXEF. MX Exploration is exploring its 100% owned Perone Gold Project in Quebec, Canada, featuring super high-grade intersects. Go to their website, AmexExploration.com. And now, here's Ellis Martin with David Morgan. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with David Morgan, a precious metals aficionado armed with degrees in finance and engineering. He created the MorganReport.com website and originated the Morgan Report covering economic news, overall financial health of the global economy, currency problems, 
and the key reasons for investing in the resource sector. David considers himself a big-picture macroeconomist whose main job is education, educating people about honest money and the benefits of a sound financial system. David, welcome back to the program. Well, it's great to be back with you. I was at an investment dinner last night, you know, one of these road shows that mining companies parade through the United States at some point, and Southern California is a hot spot for that. And somebody in the audience during the dinner was asking the question, what do you think the price of gold is going to be next year? Where's it going? When's it going up? And I just thought I needed to volunteer that information, although I think making predictions on my part are not a good idea. I'm a journalist. I'm not an analyst. You're an analyst, David. And I decided to say, I can answer that question. It's going to hit between 2300 and 2500 by April of 2020. Sort of blurted that out. And it was basing that on my memory of geopolitics, the price of oil, which is heading up towards $6 here in California. That's pretty high. And my memory of gold prices and whatnot during the Nixon administration, during that impeachment trial that was going on, or the supposed impeachment that was slated to happen in 1974. Do you think I'm too liberal with my prediction? Well, I have to laugh when I think about it because of the all the predictions I've been always asked to make through the years. And people are very quick to point out, you know, when you're wrong. And I've made several that were inaccurate. I actually successfully called every top in the silver market, which also corresponds to the gold market, all the way up, but the major tops. But getting the bottoms correct, not so much. And predicting where it's going to be a year out has been very tough. And, you know, anyone that wants to get in the prediction business probably should take two aspirin, go to bed and not do it. But I would say, it's first of all, you know, I look at the technical work and I don't rely on it solely because fundamentals play an important part. Yeah, I think they're a little bit aggressive, but what we don't know is what is going to happen with you now in April could be, you know, 3,000. I don't know. I would say from my own guess, we've got to get above 1,900 to see it accelerate beyond that. Once you get above 1,900, it could easily go to 22, 2,300 within a matter of just some trading sessions, like two or three weeks worth. To get to that level, you got to get through the 1750 level, 1800. There'll be some resistance there because of the people that bought it that high, which aren't that many, but there's still some, and let's say that's enough, or there'll be profit taking by the professionals. Regardless, we're going higher. I think that's the most important thing. I'm trying to couch my answer where it helps the most people rather than gives a lot of people ammunition. Well, David, you're wrong again. You said gold will be at 1951 and it hit 1953. Look at how wrong you are. So I think your thinking is accurate. And with the pending impeachment, all that's going on in the banking system, the repurchase agreements, it's really QE4. We wrote about that in this current edition of the Morgan Report, which is just like less than a week old. And on and on it goes. So the systemic risk and problems have not been resolved in any way, shape, or form. The problems with the financial system on a global basis is getting near the cliff every day. And so to predict what gold will do is it'll go up. How fast and when, we aren't sure. Quebec, Canada is one of the most mining-friendly jurisdictions in the world. That's where you'll find Amex Exploration. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as AMX and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as AMXEF. 
Amex during their 2018-2019 drilling program on their 100% owned Perone Gold project has returned multiple super high-grade gold intersects. These include approximately 9.5 ounces per ton of gold over 1.35 meters, 20.5 ounces per ton of gold over 0.8 meters, and 7.6 ounces per ton gold over 0.65 meters. Visible gold has been intersected in virtually every hole of the high-grade zone exploration program. Amex is led by a very senior and talented team of mine finders and mine financiers that have invested their own capital next to shareholders' capital and are committed to spending shareholder money wisely to build value. The company recently completed a $5 million financing and brought on two large investors, Eric Sprott and Commodity Capital. Amex can drill year-round and recently added a second drill to allow for regional exploration and targeted drilling on the eastern gold zone of the Perone property, which should continue to yield ample news flows throughout the balance of 2019. Follow this exciting gold discovery story by going to AmexExploration.com. Has money dried up for the juniors right now as gold hovers around $1,500? Pretty much. You're going to see a huge acceleration in the junior market this time at the end of phase three, which we've just entered. The big money, the easy money was made in phase one when gold started to emerge after basically a 20-year bear market. And after that 20-year bear market, there was a lot of money pouring into the gold market. Once it bottomed at 252, it started up, it got to 300, 320, 325. Then the interest started coming in, a lot of money moved in. And just about anything that had gold in its name was up five, ten times. A lot of them were. And that was, I'd say, the easy money. The next time that those kinds of companies accelerate won't be at the beginning of this last phase. It'll be at the end of it. So once gold gets over that 1900 it's in the 2000s, 22, 23, gets to 3000 wherever it's going, what's going to happen is a lot of these people will be able to find money and they're going to be promoting the heck out of a lot of moose pasture. There'll be a lot of penny stocks in the micro cap world that have the greatest stories you've never heard and they are going to accelerate like crazy. And you can make a lot of money if you're very nimble and very savvy but what really goes on at that phase of the market so you really have to be cognizant of what happens during the three phases of a bull market the first phase easy money the second phase only companies of merit survive which is we've finally gotten through that and then the last phase it's companies of merit that survive that are making money in the process of mining gold and silver or platinum palladium or rhodium or cobalt or vanadium or whatever the mineral so that's where we are at and it's starting to go again up and higher. So now these companies become more and more profitable, which means there's more and more money in the sector, more interest in the sector. And then finally, you'll get to that last phase where it says, oh my God, we got to get in the gold mining business. Gold's gone above 2,500 to 2,800 in the last two months. Let's raise some money. Easy to do so. And then they promote, you know, XYZ mining company. It's going to be the greatest thing that never happened and blah, 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 blah. And a lot of people say, I'm in. And as sophisticated as people can be today with the internet, they're not. They're not. They're going to see a story on this gold stock, silver stock, maybe vanadium, whatever happens to be the commodity de jure, and they will easily buy it because it's cheap. When I die, I want my epitaph to read, people love cheap stocks, and they do. Cheap stocks are cheap for a reason, and the reason they're cheap is because they usually don't have much merit at all. Now, I want to be a hypocrite. I have some micro cap stocks in my portfolio, 
but I do it different than most people in the whole industry. And I say bet a little to win a lot. There's reasons why the Eric Sprots of the world and the Frank Juice of the world talk about why they're in juniors only. And that's a special program I'm going to do as a webinar for the general public because they have an advantage that very few people even know about. And they don't talk about that part either, but I will. So is smart money going to come into the uh virtually dead mining sector right now and then in january or february when we begin maybe to see that upward tick everyone else will start coming in or we just no action until yeah that's an excellent question i hope people heard it is smart money going to come into the sector now and you actually it's a great question yes the smartest money will come into the sector now because they're finding bargains of projects of real merit because they know what they are. And what I've been talking about for the last five minutes is, let's say, below average quality mining situations. That happens at the very end. But for right now, if there's a quality project, the money will be found. Absolutely. In fact, there's one that, oh, I don't even know how to frame it. It's been resurrected in a country that was one that was rather uh, difficult and has now become more friendly to mining again. And this company has been able to raise a great deal of money very quickly because it's a lead pipe cinch. It's definitely got the materials there and in quantity. So that's a good example of what you just asked. Why do I think you're teasing the Morgan report right now, David? Because I am, and it's one that's rather embarrassing. It's one we had on the list for a very, very long time, and finally I couldn't take it anymore, and I offed it. And now, the for the umpteenth time, reformulated the company, and it's going to be a spinoff, and it's going to be a lot easier to follow the story. And so I actually own some shares in it still. And I think it's going to be a big story, but it is a microcap stock, and it is run by a management that I really like on a personal level, but they have had had some struggles over the years. I'll have to put it politely. All right. Well, then how do we find that information? Well, I'll be putting this one out for free on the free list. I mean, I have to disclose I own it, which of course I will. And just go to themorganreport.com, get on the free list in probably about two weeks because my people have already read the whole thing in the last issue. And unless you want to pay me, don't. Just wait for about two weeks and I will pretty much do about 80% of what I wrote for the paid people in this free version. And I don't do this very often. Ellis, as you well know, because you do get the full report. It's going to be disclosed that, you know, Morgan Report subscribers have, uh, I don't even know how to frame it, struggled with this company for a long time. looks like finally, with this potential spinoff, I can't even say it's going to happen because that's forward-looking, but potential spinoff will be one of the best blah, 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 silver situations you're ever going to see kind of thing, and uh, we'll see what happens. Well, David, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. My pleasure, Ellis. Thanks for having me. I've been chatting with analyst, investor, and newsletter writer David Morgan. His website is themorganreport.com. And download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. This segment of the Ellis Martin Report has been sponsored by Amex Exploration. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol AMX. And in the U.S. on the OTCQX as AMXEF. Amex Exploration is exploring its 100% owned, our own gold project in Quebec, Canada. Featuring super high-grade intersects. Go to their website, AmexExploration.com. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. Join us next time for more opportunities to discover on the Ellis Martin Report. Meanwhile, subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit ellismartinreport.com.